The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. In the first service, when the Old Testament reading was being read and the words will wipe away all tears from their faces happened, one of our little children fell and started screaming. So it was perfectly on cue. But I thought we all kind of feel like that this morning. So if you're feeling like that this morning, you're especially welcome. Uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you through Christ our Lord. For we pray in his name. Amen. This is our fourth sermon in a series where we're seeking to rearticulate the identity and the vision of our church. And we're doing this in conjunction with a capital campaign. So at the very outset, I'd like to ask all of you, especially those of you who are members, to pray about how it is that you would participate in this campaign and how the Lord would have you participate We need to raise $1.5 million more for those pledges to come in. And that's a lot of money. And we're hoping to see that happen within the next month. So that's not a lot of time. But the passage that we're considering this morning, I would say is one of the most compelling reasons to give and to participate in what the Lord is doing in our church or in the world. Before jumping into that, into Luke 14, which Josh just read for us, or I want you to consider this essay, uh, which is one of the most important and I think transformational essays that I've ever read, maybe more so than anything else. Any guesses on who wrote it? C.S. Lewis. I heard it. Very good. That's exactly right. It's called The Inner Ring. Lewis begins by reading a section from Tolstoy's War and Peace, and then he comments on it. He says, young second lieutenant Boris Dubretskoy discovers that there exist in the army two different systems or hierarchies. The one is printed in some little red book and anyone can easily read it up. It also remains constant. A general is always superior to a colonel and a colonel to a captain. The other is not printed anywhere. You're never really 
never formally or explicitly admitted by anyone. You discover gradually in almost indefinable ways that it exists and that you're outside of it. And then later, perhaps you are inside it. It's not so constant. It is not easy at any given moment to say who is inside and who is outside. Some people are obviously in and some people are obviously out, but there are always several on the border. There are no formal admissions or expulsions. People think they are in it after they have in fact been pushed out of it. The only certain rule is that the insiders and outsiders call it by different names. From inside, it may be called you and Tony and me. From outside, if you have despaired of getting into it, you call it that gang or they or the inner ring. You have met the phenomenon of the inner ring. I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Lewis says that you have met this phenomenon that we all have. Maybe it's that group of friends back in high school that you were a part of, and then all of a sudden you weren't a part of it anymore, inexplicably. Or maybe it was in college and there was the sorority within the sorority that you always tried to get into, but you were never welcomed. Or maybe it's that group at work, at your firm or at your company, they always go to lunch and they always seem to know what's happening at the company or the firm long before you do. You've met this phenomenon Lewis calls the inner ring. And why is it so terrifying? Why is it so painful to be left outside of it? And why is it so dangerously satisfying to finally be let in? And what if the world is really like this? If it's like overlapping concentric circles of inner rings, like an onion chopped in half and laid open, you can see the circles, concentric circles, one after the other. And we're always just trying to get in, into one more smaller and more exclusive ring. We're always trying to get in a little bit more. What if the world is really like that? What would the calling be for a Christian to live distinctly and uniquely in a world like this? In other words, what is the fundamental calling of the church? Three points to answer that question, a very important question, maybe the most important question for us. So the challenge, the excuse, and the image. Those are the points. First of all, the challenge. Jesus is at a dinner party here in our passage. He's watched all of the guests jockey for the best seats, and he's saddened. He's even annoyed by what he has seen. And we didn't read the entire passage. Right before where we began, Jesus says this, and he says it to the guests. He says, when you are invited to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. The host will come to you and say, give this place to that person. Instead, go and sit in the lowest place. So when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. You understand that in Jesus's day, people didn't use name cards at tables at dinners like we do, but they did still seat themselves relationally just like we do, just like we do at weddings. If you are ever at a sit down dinner at a wedding reception and you're in the far off corner, back in the corner, as far away from the bride and groom's table as possible with the crazy second cousin who's going to be drunk dancing later in the night to John Bon Jovi's living on a prayer. And you know that guy, don't be that guy. If you're sitting with him, you know where you stand relationally with the couple. Where you are seated by the host is where you stand relationally with him or with her. There's a pecking order. That's true now. It's true then. We put the pressure on the host to reveal the order. In Jesus' day, the pressure was on the guests to figure it out. So imagine how awkward that would be. How awkward and how, how much anxiety and contempt and jealousy and envy would be involved. 
<clears throat> especially in this culture, ancient Near Eastern Palestinian Judaism, it was operated by patronage. And that's because this, this society was very stratified in terms of social class. There was a definite hierarchy and you had to be connected to the people at the top in order to get anything done, to get business done, to get anything done that you wanted or needed. You had to know somebody. And so hosts were, they invited guests into their homes in order to create social power networks in order to get favors done. That's what's happening here. That's what Jesus so uncomfortably names when he says, your friends are here. Those are the people you want to invite. Your family is here. Those are the people you have to invite. And then your rich neighbors are here as well. Those are the people you need to invite. You need them. You want to use them. And that's what's happening. This host is using them. They're a means to an end of getting paid, as Jesus says, repaid in some quid pro quo sort of way. And Jesus knows that that's why he's here. He's trying to be used by this host. And so he begins to just effectively trash the entire patronage system. After speaking to the guests, as our passage begins in verses 12 through 14, he talks to the hosts now. He looks squarely in the host's eyes and he says, next party, invite some people who can't repay you. He's not just trashing the patronage system. He's also challenging the world in general, because we know this. The world does relationships like this. We've all done it. We've all experienced it. We know what it's like. People get invited. Relationships get formed if they can add value to your life. And if they can't, then they're not worth it. They're not worth the time, the effort, the energy. We speak like this. We might even call it relational usury. Do you know this word? It's not a word that we use too often anymore. It's lending money at ridiculously high rates of interest. It's actually illegal. And we have to ask, we, we actually really have to ask, are our supper clubs this? Are our business lunches and our tailgates and our birthday parties, are they this? Are our ranch weekends or our lake trips just this, just relational usury? We have to ask that and then we have to realize that Jesus is contrasting everything that he sees here at this party with the kingdom of God. One guy shouts out, blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He gets it. He gets it. He knows what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's also very confident that he's going to be included. And so in order to undermine that confidence just a little more, Jesus tells this parable of the great banquet in order to unsettle him and everybody else there. And that's when point two begins, the excuse. People refuse to come to this banquet, which is clearly the kingdom of God. God is the host and his kingdom is like this great ultimate party at the end of all time when, as the scriptures teach us, Jesus will return like a bridegroom coming from heaven to earth to this ultimate wedding reception that was described in Isaiah chapter 25, all tears wiped away, all reproach taken away, the best wine, aged wine for everyone. Death is swallowed up. And so why don't they come? And it's not because they weren't invited. Verse 17 tells us that. It speaks about the host sending out his servants out into the village, the town, in order to tell everyone who's already been invited, and by the way, who's already RSVP'd, that the party is about to start. And then the excuses begin. And in verse 18, these excuses are people reneging on their previous commitment to come. And there's lots of theological stuff going on here. Lots of theological stuff about Israel and the Gentiles and who's being cut off and who's being grafted in and why. But for our purposes, more simply just notice 
why they don't come. What's behind the excuses? Very simply, one thing that's behind them all is busyness. They're just busy. They're too busy for God's feast. And notice who it is that's too busy. It's the successful and the achieved and the accomplished, those who are already happy in this life because they're already celebrating something. One guy has bought a new piece of land, new property. He's got to go see it. Another guy has some new oxen, five yoke of oxen. For all you city people, that's 10 oxen. In that day and age, if a farmer had any oxen, it was one ox. So this guy is 10 times as wealthy as the average farmer. And that's his excuse. It's as if the excuses get more and more impressive, like they're trying to one up one another. I've got a land. I've got land. Well, I've got a lot of land. So many that I need this many oxen. And then the final guy, he, he's got a, his own party to go to where he's going to be celebrated and his life's going to be celebrated. He just got married. He's got his own wedding feast. And that's really the point, friends. That's, that's the point behind all the business and really the excuse behind all of the excuses. There's one excuse. And that is that there's something better to attend than the kingdom of God. There's a better party being thrown somewhere than God's party. They think, I've got to be at that. I've got to be at that with those people because they're what's truly important. That's what's truly important. Those are the people that I've got to use in order to get where I want to get to or to be who I want to be or to feel as significant as I need to feel because they're at that banquet with those people doing what they do. That's where true life is found. That is true life. And is it? Is it true life? Consider all of the things that make our lives so busy. Is that where true life is found? Do you know how many people will attend ACL over the next two weekends? This weekend and next? 450,000 at some point. Now, multiple people will go multiple times. So 450,000 will walk through those gates. It's one of the parties not to be missed. It's the party of all parties thrown by Austin, one of the great party cities of the world. And I wonder why it is that so many teens are spending so much time on Instagram and suffering mentally and emotionally because of that and how it's connected to things like ACL. Maybe it's because Instagram shows all the parties that are going on in the world, all the ones that you are invited to, but also, of course, all the ones that you weren't invited to. And we stare longingly and jealously and enviously into our phones. And we see how great in places of all of the parties and everything that's going on that we weren't invited to and how beautiful all of those people are at those places and those parties. And then we post pictures of ourselves, of our parties, in part perhaps to convince ourselves and others that we belong somewhere that we belong somewhere on the world's pecking order of invitees. We want to convince ourselves and others that we weren't being wanted by the world. Have you been keeping up with all the Wall Street Journal investigations and articles on Instagram and TikTok that's been published lately? Congressional hearings and everything? I mean, God help us. One third of teenage girls report that when they feel bad about their bodies, Instagram makes them feel worse. But they can't stop looking, the report says. They want to stop, but they can't. And boys too. The statistics for boys are lower, but they're still shocking. The Wall Street Journal article about Instagram said that Instagram is now, quote, the online equivalent of the high school cafeteria, a place for teens to post their best photos, find friends, size each other up, brag, and bully. Do you remember the cafeteria in middle school and high school? 
Do you remember that? That was terrible. I mean, it is exactly what Jesus is challenging here, a hormone-laden adolescent version of the patronage system. And at least when I was a kid in middle school or in high school, you only had to endure all the social dynamics of the cafeteria for one hour a day. Now the cafeteria follows our kids through social media everywhere, everywhere. And here's my point. My point is maybe all those parties, Maybe all of those people, all of those places, all of that patronage that makes us all so busy, too busy even at times for God, maybe it's not where true life is actually found. Maybe we need to consider our excuses. Consider the excuses of our lives. But here's the hope, and that's in the third point, the image. This image of God presented here is revolutionary. It's so common throughout the scriptures, I think we've become a little bit inoculated to it. It can be revolutionary. It presents God, the God of the Bible, as a host of a great banquet. It says, a man threw, he prepared, or probably better translated, was preparing a great banquet. What if this was the fundamental image of God, not simply in this passage, but throughout the Bible? What would that change? What would change for you? What would change for us? If this was the fundamental image that shapes the theology and the mission of our church, what would be different? God as a desiring, yearning host of a massive, truly life-giving party. Do you in any way see God like that? Greg Thompson, who used to be a pastor in our denomination and is now an author and a speaker and kind of a public theologian, he's done a lot of work on this passage and this image. And he thinks that there are two other images that are primary when people think about God in our society. And there, the image of God is judge and God is healer. He says, those who see God fundamentally as a judge will focus on the rules of life, on law, on what's right and what's wrong, and especially on who it is that's in the right and who it is that's in the wrong. And I, my staff, my ministry staff see this so often in marital counseling. Couples come in who are in conflict that each of them have contributed to, but neither of them are willing to see or to admit the way in which they are wrong because they're so hyper-focused on their spouses and the wrong that they have done. And they come to me, to others, wanting quote-unquote counseling. They don't want counseling. What do they want? They want a verdict. They want to be vindicated. They, They want for me or for someone to pronounce some sort of vindication over them. And at some point, I eventually have to tell them, listen, you're going to have, you have a choice. You're either going to want to be proven right or you're going to want to remain married. It's one or the other. Now, of course, God is a judge. This is not the primary image that we find, not only in this passage, but throughout the scriptures. And it's important that God is a judge. God judges here in our passage. He gets angry in verse 21 about a wrong that it's done. He's he's angry about this wrong and he does something to right it. And then he makes an authoritative declaration of judgment in verse 24. None of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. That is a host speaking about a judge. But notice that he judges those things and those people that disrupt his hospitality. Judgment isn't primary. His hospitality is primary. The judgment just serves to ensure the welcome and the hosting of his desired guest. That's why he judges. He judges for hospitality. And the same is true of healing. God is a healer. It's also a pervasive image throughout the scriptures. Here, who comes? It's the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. They are people who obviously need healing, but they don't come to the party just to get healed. 
They get healed in order that they might fully and completely enjoy the party. That is what is fundamental. The feast is what is fundamental. So ask ourselves, is God concerned with my healing? We we prayed this morning for those who are sick, both in mind and in heart and body. Of course, God is concerned with our healing, with our transformation, but why? Is it for what so much of our therapeutic culture says? Is it what moralistic therapeutic deism, you've heard me talk about that as one of the enemies of the gospel, moralistic therapeutic deism, is it what that says God is concerned with? Is God mainly concerned with how we individually feel and that we feel fully and completely happy right now in this life and about everything in our life? Is God mainly concerned with some sort of therapeutic salvation about our individual lives in this temporary world? No, of course not. Do not be sucked into that. He transforms people for the coming world that's like a feast. Not for themselves at all, but for the feast. And that's why the view of God as judge or the view of God as healer, important images, but they're never primary because those images maintain the focus on us, on the self, on vindication of the self, of healing of the self. And neither can be the fundamental Christian view of God because Christianity believes that God is never focused on himself. I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear me. God is never focused on himself. Because Christianity insists that before all things, God was. And not only that he was, but that he was and is three persons in one God. And therefore, three persons bound together in an endless offering of themselves. Endless offering of themselves to other. An eternal giving and receiving. An infinite expression of loving welcome. So our doctrine of the Trinity insists that our fundamental image of God is that as a yearning host. Why did God create you? Why did he create anything and all things? This beautiful world, our lives and relationships in it, why did he create it? It's not because he had to. It's because he wanted to. He desired to. He desired to invite the entire world into his eternally loving life. All things, all people, even you. Creation itself is an act of hospitality to you. And even more so, in many ways, redemption. Because through the image of a host, we can understand what our fall into sin was, what it was, what it is, what it does to us. And that is it resulted in an exile to other tables because we sought other hosts to feed us and to bring us life that's not fully life and joy that's only temporary amusement or other things. And that's where some of you are right now. Something you need to be honest about. It's where you are right now. You're feasting at some other host's table. And your life and your well-being and your sense of self, it's totally dependent upon the whimsical moves and the capricious ways of that host, whomever he, she, or it is. And not only that, but what their view of what's true and good and right is. Listen to me. You don't have to feast at those tables. You don't have to feast at the table of the popular crowd. You don't have to feast at the table of your money-hungry, greedy boss. You don't have to feast at the the table of your foolish ex-husband or your condescending and shaming mother or your emotionally abusive father or your emotionally abusive and dismissive friend or the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the news media or the social media. You don't have to feast at those tables. You don't have to stay in exile at the tables of the world. You don't have to center your heart and your life and your identity on any of that. You can come home. 
Because in God's grace, we remain his desired guests. You remain whoever you are, whatever your life has entailed or involves now, you remain God's desired guest. Because the Bible is fundamentally a story of return home to God and to his table. It's a story of God's radical hospitality to us. Think about the Bible as a whole. I'm going to do this quickly, but listen. The entire world is set before Noah after the flood, like a feast. The whole world, all of creation. And then the inheritance of a promised land flowing with milk and honey is set before Abraham. And then water from the rock and quail from the sky and manna from heaven and milk and honey are set all before Israel as they journey home to this promised land. And then as we read this morning in Isaiah, the end of the world is is considered and viewed as a great feast. And then Jesus came. Jesus came for the feast as both host and guest. Not just host, but guest also God, but also God in human form. And he offered the only perfect response to the Father's invitation to come home. We haven't. You haven't. We're people who make excuses. Jesus offered the perfect response. When he was a child, he lingered in his father's house. And then when he was grown up and was about to begin his public ministry, he was tempted by Satan, and he hungered not for bread alone, but from every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And then he's on the cross dying for the consequences of all of our sins, and he thirsts. And what does he thirst for? Ultimately, he thirsts for the wine of the Father's presence. And then he dies, and he's raised, and he ascends into heaven, and he's given the seat of honor. He's the first of many to be sat down in God's kingdom in heaven, and from there, he will return as a bridegroom to a feast that's been prepared for him and for you, for you. Because the gospel is the story of God's hospitality to us. Do you know what that does? Do you know what that can do to you, to me, to us? If the fundamental image of God as yearning host and the world as his desired guest, if that's true, then as Greg Thompson says, it makes us, it transforms us into his gathering servants. Where are we in this parable? Where are the Christians? Where is the church? They're the servants who go out and gather more in because as this passage says, there's still room, verse 22. There's still room. So go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. That is the heart of God right there. And that is the fundamental calling of the church to be servants of an infinitely hospitable host who gathers his desired guests for the only truly ultimate life-giving feast. So this is the fundamental calling of the church, to offer and to embody the hospitality of God. So are you doing that if you're a Christian? Are you doing that? Are we doing that? And if so, to whom? Just to those who can repay you somehow? Your friends, your family, your rich neighbors, them alone? I've told you so many times that the biblical word for hospitality is the word xenophilia, love of strangers. Stranger in the sense that you simply don't know them. You don't know them. You don't know their name. You don't know who they are, but you initiate with them. You take the initiative and you invite them in. You invite them in to your house, to your home. Or strange in the sense that they are simply not like you. They're not like you. Maybe they're a Christian, but they're not like you. Maybe they're not a Christian. They're not like you. They're different than you in social class and life experience and ethnicity. They're different than you. They're strange to you, but you invite them in. Or in the sense that they're strange to this world, in the sense that the world does not want them. Because they can offer nothing to the world. That's the poor. That's the crippled. That's the blind. That's the lame. 
The church has always welcomed those that the world only rejects. So are we doing that as a church? We're trying to. And we're trying to in in every way. Hopefully everything that we do can be traced back to the hospitality of God. It's what we're trying to do with our capital campaign. Really, that's what it's about. It's about hospitality, seeking to more fully open up our church, the relationships of our church, the campus of our church, those who would come. We have a classroom across the, the courtyard here that we call the hospitality room. It's a very generous name. It's more like the inhospitality room. It's got one door. There are donuts and coffee in there. And there are dozens upon dozens of little children who dart in and out of all the adults holding hot coffee, like running backs through the line, trying to score a touchdown. It's dangerous. And that's the hospitality room. We're seeking to change that so we can welcome more people in. We're also talking about building a new elementary age playground. So as I often lovingly say that our zero to four playground wouldn't be like Lord of the Flies on Sunday morning. There'd be more space for people on Sunday throughout the week. And also a soccer field for us, but also for our neighbors, for our ESL ministry, for our various ministry partners like Side Beside Kids who we host here each and every school day. And also paying off our debt. It's an act of hospitality. That's why we're doing it. So it'll enable us to more freely plant new churches, begin new ministries, and maybe even eventually build a sanctuary that would be our final home if that's what the Lord would have for us. And so yes, please give, please give, please pray about how to give, but even more so practice hospitality. It's got to be practice. We're people who make excuses. We're not naturally hospitable people. Supernaturally, we can be, and we need to lean into that. So invite strangers in, into your lives, into your homes, into our church, that they might taste and know the hospitality of God to them in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you, by your spirit, for the sake of Jesus, would make us into hospitable people, make us into people who give up all excuses and who seek to come to you, to your feast, to have our souls nourished and fed, but also who, who seek to not come alone. We pray that we would bring others with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.